Hello, friend. Thank you, as always, for listening to The Tully Show. I can't believe I'm doing this again, but real quick, once again, apologies for the slightly subpar quality of the audio you are about to enjoy. It is 1 million percent my fault. Dumb story. Mark McGrath couldn't come to the house. We did it on Zoom. We connect. I can't hear him. I'm changing settings. I can't hear him. I delete the app. I reinstall it. I still can't hear him. And then I look down and I realize the whole time my earbuds were, were plugged into my computer, but not plugged into my ear. So once I put it in my ear, all of a sudden I could hear him. Hear him. By then I had changed the settings and we end up with what you are about to listen to. Didn't seem to bum anybody out all that much last time. So hopefully you will find it listenable and enjoyable. We had to do this one by popular demand, part two of all the noteworthy new music releases from June of 1981. While I have you here, patreon.com slash Mike Tully, all kinds of silly news pods and listener Q&As and music podcasts. Heck, next week we're watching Starship Troopers together for my birthday. Come and join us, patreon.com slash Mike Tully, patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Okay, you ready to start this show? Coming to you live, on tape, on location, in rapidly gentrifying Culver City, adjacent California, from, once again, my home away from home, my nine-year-old son's bedroom, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, joining us today once again, the lead singer of Sugar Ray, three-time champion of rock and roll Jeopardy, as seen last week on The Talk. Hello and welcome back, our dear friend, Mark McGrath. Tully, what is up, dude? Uh, I I think our show's catching a little vibe, man, because I was in the liquor store today and some guy came up to me and challenged me because he heard me on the Tully show. No. And he, yes, he goes, now, I know you're supposed to be the rock and roll trivia guy. So now it's starting again, by the way, which is great. I love it. But he, he goes, he goes, give me the original drummer for The Clash. And I go, dude, if you're going to play games with me, we can't play. You know, we Uh-oh. can't play. Yeah. And I go, Terry, I go, Terry Chimes, you're buying my Jameson. So and the show started to take off. And the funniest thing was that guy hit us on social media and said, how come you guys ever talk about the Buzzcocks and the Cramps? And we literally did a 20-minute piece on the Cramps like two episodes ago. So I think we're starting to hit people's uh, – you know, their trivia feels, their their deep dive feels. And I think that means the show is doing everything right, Michael Tully. Yeah, I don't know how, if somebody was listening for us to talk about the cramps, I don't know how they would have missed the bit where we mentioned that their first single, one of their signature songs, Goo Goo Muck, was originally recorded by Ronnie something or other and the Gaylords. That's not the kind <laughs> right. of thing, that's not the kind of thing you forget. Of course, because if you think you're cool, you take, oh, I know the cramps, oh, Goo Goo Muck. It's the only song anybody knows by him, right? Yeah. And so we went to that whole thing and then find out that they didn't even write that. So that was a cramps revolution, a revelation for me. So not only did we touch on them, we, we had a, a bit on the cramps. So, yeah. hey, I'll tell you what, if you're listening, stick around. Whether you're, you know, whether you love Ambrosia or whether you love uh, 98 Degrees, or whether you love uh, the Tigers of Pantang, we're going to get to them some way, somehow. 
Yeah, sooner or later, we're just steamrolling all of musical history, so we're not going to miss anything. Mark, you're wearing a boxing T-shirt, but it's not just for that reason that, to me, you look like you're in fighting shape. You look primped and ready to go. You look road ready. You look like a new man. I appreciate you saying that, Tully. I've been trying to watch it. It's all about diet. You get to be my age. I'm trying to diet a little. This shirt is actually from the movie The Town. If you ever saw The Town... Yeah. Uh, with Ben Affleck and uh, Jeremy, uh, what's his name? The, the, Renner? Uh, the great, yeah, Jeremy Renner. And who, who, he's, a, he's a really evil doer in that, in that uh, movie. And he wears this shirt. It's called the uh, Irish Pub Boxing. And it's from a bar called Sullivan's. I did the research on it because I thought the shirt was so cool. So that's just a, a, there's a byproduct of me trying to be cool wearing this shirt. It has nothing to do with my fitness. But everything to do with the diet I've been working on to shed a couple of pounds because I was on the talk last week. And when you're on TV, you know what I mean? You want to look your best, man. You know, well, especially, especially when you're there so that the hostess can say that you were her her 90s trapper keeper heartthrob. There's a certain you know, nobody. Nobody expects you to look exactly like the trapper keeper. But it's a sad sight when you know, bystanders are going, that guy, that, this, this, that man sitting there, he's the same guy on the, on the trapper keeper. <laughs> you have no idea being me. And it's always a past tense thing. Like I yeah. used to have a crush on you, which I understand. So right. 25 pounds, 25 years ago. But the craziest thing with totally you being a stand-up comedian, Elijah Schleslinger was on the show as well. Yeah. And she said, I also had a crush on you and I had a picture of you with your tattoo on the back it was from a Jansport ad I did. Uh-huh. And so she totally had a backup, like, you know, cosign on the crush. So not only was it awkward, not only was it past tense, but yeah. it's the story of my life. I mean, it's like people in this day think, oh, look at the plastic surgery you got. I go, nah, bro. Last time you saw me was in 99 in the Every Morning video. I've lost 40 friends and gained 20 pounds. You know what I mean? It's how it works. It's amazing. When, you're ta- when, <laughs> you talk to, when you talk to women of a certain age, you never know which one of them might have made out with a photo of you at some point. You never know. And that's so disturbing and, and kind, of, uh, <laughs> kind, of, kind of cool at the same time. But, you know, because of that real craziness. And by the way, if you are fortunate enough to like be part of that phenomenon, say, a sexy rocker of 98 people had a poster of you that goes away quickly. And that comes the, that comes with a real foul stench after a while. And I've told you about this, Tully, the stink of the nineties took a long time to go away. Mm-hmm. Well, people now just focus on the songs, which is great. It's yeah. a beautiful place to be But for about 15 years. I was really getting murdered in that nineties douche spot, which I, which I earned, I rightfully earned, but it's uh Thankfully, being a little more alleviated now and more look back on nostalgia as opposed to with ire and hate. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, we're getting there. Yeah, the 90s are definitely, look, we've, we've, heaven knows we've done that. Well, I'm about to say we've all done the 80s to death. Can we leave it alone? Just, just before you and I launch into an hour-long conversation no about, about Al Jarreau records. <laughs> but <laughs> there's, there's, plenty, there's plenty of nostalgic uh, energy and, and uh, airtime to go around. And, and it, 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 I, f- I feel that personally, that, you know, when um, uh, the wife and I are looking for yet another dumb 80s movie to watch, and we've just done all of them. Now, la- two nights ago, we watched The Man Who Knew Too Little, the, the forgotten Bill Murray movie, because at this right. point, 94 might as well be 84. You're in that... You're in that suite. You now belong to the mists of history. And I mean that in a good way. 
No, and, and, and I, I know exactly what you mean. And I think it's a beautiful way we're breaking this down because we're not being precious for genres. You know, we're talking about punk yeah. rock. We're talking about air supply. And I don't think anybody's done that yet. Yeah, people exhausted the hair metal thing to death. They exhausted yeah. the New Road exact. But no one's broken down an Al Jarreau record, a Manhattan Transfer record. And then guess what? The Cramps record came out that month that, and, and then talked about it with the same passion for all three acts. And that's, that's why I have so much fun. I know, and, and and that's the thing. I really didn't think so. So we're we're going to talk about June of nineteen eighty one again. You know, I don't, I don't, not just these aren't just words. By popular demand, a number of people have physically threatened you and I via social media. <laughs> Should we not get to the rest of the June eighty one new releases? I whittled it down to twenty nine songs that came out, twenty nine albums that came out in that month that I thought were worthy of of conversation. Again, not even counting David Johansson. And last time we got through the Beatles. There's the Yoko thing. There's the George Harrison thing. We got through the pop stuff, the Village People's Weird New Wave thing, Air Supply, the Pointer Sisters, the debut of Duran Duran. And basically at this point, we can just call it the KROQ, the K-Rock section, all of the stuff right. that was hip and happening um, and boy, you know, I've been thinking about New York has a chip on its shoulder about its music scene and L.A. has a chip on its shoulder about its music scene. And depending on when you want to start counting from, you know, I think I would give L.A. the um, the edge in the 60s and early 70s. But then, you know, with the punk stuff, the, the New York stuff is obviously more iconic with all due respect um, when you compare to the. The, the West Coast stuff. And obviously there's always been more music coming out of LA because the record labels are out here, but just it's really, really sinking in with me. You all out here at that time, at this time, the early eighties, late seventies had the KROQ. We did not have an equivalent in New York. And therefore the amount of people out here who had really, really excellent music at their fingertips because people with really amazing taste we're not only curating the stuff that they would that they sh you know would want to slash should be listening to, but those people had had a radio station that was actually paying the bills with advertising somehow. There's never been a shortage of people who want to make a really cool radio station. It's just hard to get on the air, and when they do, they tend to fall off the air and get replaced by a country station three months later or a mariachi station or something. So boy, when you talk about New York versus L.A., that's a that's a a a, a, a big that's a big spin. asset. Yeah, that it's, it's a big asset. It's a big, and like you said, I mean, KRQ was something we, I mean, we all listened to the Kiss FMs, and there was the KRS, and they were still there, so we had access to all that. But KRQ was this this phenomenal station. It was being curated by Rodney Bingheimer, mm -hmm. Bingheimer, the, the legendary Rodney Bingheimer, the mayor of the Sunset Strip. So you're listening to Iggy Pop. Agent Orange, TSOL, and The Midnight Show. And then all praise needs to be due to Richard Blade. I cannot <laughs> tell you what that man did to usher in the Duran Durans, the Peche Modes, the Cure. I mean, and obviously, KROQ, which we called it back then, we'll call it the KROQ phenomenon, would not have existed if it wasn't a radio station that made money. Yep. Luckily, right place, right time. Southern California, LA was exploding with so many different things, whether it was skateboarding, surfing, snowboarding, and KRQ was going to be the soundtrack to all that we were doing. So yeah, we were lucky and blessed to have that. It took the rest of the country a while to catch up, 
But the mid eighties, you were catching up the psychedelic furs and all that money talks and, you know, the cure was starting to come around and Depeche Mode all of a sudden, I think MTV was a great equalizer after a while, but yeah. we all kind of shared that that's where we're going to get our stuff from. And then uh, Rodney on the rock, Rodney Bigenheimer kind of became uh, MTV's 120 minutes. That's where the extra cool stuff was to go. You know, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. 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 MTV and, and uh, John Hughes. I mean, the role that John Hughes played in popularizing marginal music, it's, 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 there's never been anybody really like him. You know, I think when we talk about Quentin Tarantino as a filmmaker, we often forget that that's a, actually a big part of his legacy. The man literally created hit songs out of forgotten songs that had come out 20 years earlier. But there are a lot of these songs, Psychedelic Furs, what, what, did they have an MTV presence? I don't remember Psychedelic Furs videos. I'm sure they made them. I'm sure they got some cursory spins. I'm sure they were on 120 minutes. But the fact that he literally had a movie called Pretty in Pink. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they got a little bit of love with the, you know, there's a heartbreak beat. Yeah. You know, in that day and that day. So like 86, 87, they did. But you also got to remember, too, there was a lot of actors, a la John Hughes, that, were, that wanted to, uh, you know, infuse a little coolness into their movies like John Cusack. Matt Dillon, they said, look, you better put the clash into this movie. It's part of my contract. You better put Elvis Costello in here. It's part of my contract. So there's this big kismet working and a change of music that was like, look, man, we're, we're done with yes. We're done with the Eagles. We want to usher in this new wave of music. And I think it was being hit by all mediums in the 80s, whether it be film, whether it be music, whether it be the aesthetic. And it was the perfect storm to break through, which led to the Lollapalooza era of the 90s, which Lollapalooza was the KRQ phenomenon of the 80s. It was Lollapalooza was the equivalent of the 90s to me. It just broke down all walls. Now everything went. That's right. You know, right. And here and here we are now breaking down all walls between music uh, from 1981, whatever remaining walls might remain around <laughs> this. Because you're right. Nobody does talk about all these. And I, 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 I find it in a lot of ways at this point, we're just picking over the bones of the stuff that came out when the rest of the music that we love came out. And I'm like the least excited about the stuff that I've listened to 10 million times. The number one reason why it, in my heart, I needed to come back and finish all of these new releases from June of 81. I'll say it again, Al Jarreau. I just felt so badly that we left that off. I've been listening to that album ever since we didn't talk about it. So let's just, let's just start there. Girl, so really quickly before, you, before I, I tell you, interrupt you, you said Johnny Cash released a record in 81. I did. I want to know what the hell he was doing in 81. So, and as we've mentioned this a million times about 81, it was an incredible year of recycling, of out with the old, in with the new. Is the old going to hang with the new? It was almost like a big wash sinkle watch cycle for the music industry in 81 is johnny cash gonna hang on uh is, is joy division gonna matter so it's an incredible year that's kind of forgotten and that's why i love it and when we, i asked you to name the artists last year you had like 12 art every one i wanted to hear what record they put out yeah. so i'm glad we're revisiting it i'm sorry to uh, interrupt you back to mr al Jarreau, the king of jazz well, right. So that same phenomenon of what's going to stick from the 70s and, you know, what, what, what and what will have to change um, going into the 80s, the exact same thing is going on, I would argue, on a far more dramatic level on the side of whatever you call it, urban, urban music, R&B, you know, black music, music by by African-Americans, because hip hop is 
coming. And even everything that's not hip hop or hip hop infused coming out of the, that world is going to become a niche thing. You know, you're you, jazz is jazz is you're not sniffing the charts with a pure jazz record ever again. It's just either going to be hip hop or it's going to be an R&B song sung over a hip hop beat. And that, Boy, that's it. And that hasn't that is, happened yet, you know, but it's, but it's, but it's about to happen right here. And instead you have this really, really sweet moment. And the three um, R and B tracks and new release albums that I've selected from June of 1981 really, really, really illustrate exactly where they were and, and where they were going. So I'm going to start with Al Jarreau because this song is fucking beautiful. I don't need to um, restate and rehash the way that I feel about R and B. Just I'll say again, as I get older, I notice rock and roll and pop have always been about puppy love. They've always been about teen emotions and R and B has largely been about adult emotions. And we're in this love together is a song about loving the person you've been married to for some time. It's not about, you know, the chick that you finger banged at the Frampton concert. (laughs) (laughs) But there's such a beautiful sort of like childlike quality to the melody that, that doesn't, you know, it, it is, it, it's such a beautiful way to say, I love you to someone you've been with a long time. Because mm-hmm. it's almost like a Beatles song. She loves you. Morning, Mr. Cheerio. You know, it's, it's just the way it is. It's almost like a Beatles song in the, in the, in the melody, but it's saying, I've been married a long time. I'm so glad you're here. And I love waking up next to you. And yeah. that, if you don't marry your best friend, and if you don't love waking up next to you, you will not be married long. And Al Jarreau nailed it on this song. Yeah, exactly. Here we'll play. This is this is I love you and your coffee breath is we're in this love together by Al Jarreau. Al Jarreau just has one of the best voices I've ever heard. And when you hear him sing, it's all effortless. It's like when Prince played guitar. It's an extension of his body. His voice, like you know, he's never struggling for a note. He's never struggling to hold a note. And he makes a, a medley so much better by the very timber and presence and skill set of his vocal, the way he can scat, the way he uses his, 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 his uh, vocals as an instrument. It truly is. It adds such a dynamic to that song that might not have been the classic, if with all due respect, if, say, a, um, uh, a Michael Damien sang it or something. Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, Al Jarreau gives the song yeah. the gravitas it deserves. That's uh, Michael Damien, of all the names that you could have pulled down, Michael <laughs> Damien of, of hey, kids, hey, kids, rock and roll, rock on fame. Yeah, no, probably not. Probably not the same song. Yeah, that, that's him. That's him. Yeah, soap <laughs> opera fame. Uh, yeah. But, you know, I, 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 I'm totally capable singing his own, right? And I just, mm-hmm. it was the first name that popped in my head. No, it's He's great. just not, you know, I mean, I mean, Al Jarreau's arguably one of the best jazz, modern jazz singers of all time. So it's, it's like, it's not even comparing it. I mean, I could have said anybody. Um, but it's such a beautiful, beautiful song. I'm curious if Al Jarreau is a songwriter, Tully. Let's find out about that. I was scribbling down a note. We can totally do a show on people who were on soap operas who also uh, had. Oh, God. Off the top of my head. I I got four off the top of my head. 
Okay, go go four. Go go four. Give me your four. So Michael Damien, I'll confess I didn't know. Yep. Uh yep. Rick Springfield. Yep. Kylie, Kylie Minogue was on yep. an Aussie soap. And I yep. am a fan, yep. controversial opinion of Friends and Lovers by Gloria Loring. It totally counts. You're yeah. missing Natalie and Bruglia. It was an Australian soap opera, okay. but a soap opera. Yeah. Jack Wagner. Yes, that's All right, for sure. We could go deep. Mm -hmm. So that's just that that's me not even thinking off the top of the dome. So that yeah. might be another good one, Dolly. Okay, let's see. Who wrote We're in this love together? I don't see there I on the Wikipedia only four songs warrant warrant songwriter. Oh no, no, no. Okay, all songs written by there are uh, three. There's a songwriting team of which Al Jarreau is the third listed writer on okay. all but four tracks. And he is not one of the credited writers on We're in This Love Together. So it sounds like minimal input. I'm guessing it sounds like some lyrics is what Al Jarreau yeah. brought to the And table. probably like the way he finessed a, a medley that like, you know, the guy probably went, hey, and, and you know, Al Jarreau going, hey, hey, you know, he goes, that's my songwriting, you know? Yeah. Songwriting might not have been his, uh, his strong point, but he was damn sure going to be part of some of that publishing and royalties when you got a voice like that singing those songs. Um, you know, I, I know a lot of times Britney Spears didn't write any of her songs, but she's got like 40% of the publishing because it's Britney Spears. Because as we know, 40% of something is always better than 100% of nothing. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. The guy who is credited, the lead credited songwriter on that song, Roger Murrah or Murrah, is a, a primarily a country songwriter. He wrote stuff for Alan Jackson, Alabama, Oak Ridge Boys. Wow. And interesting. And, and we're in this love together. So that's that's one thing that's going on. The smooth jazz thing. I think of that as the I think of that as and I don't say this disparagingly, although I'm sure it sounds like it as post office music. That's the stuff that you hear if you go stand in line at a post office in Los Angeles is 94 sure. seven the wave. And sure. it took, took me a minute, but I get it now. That's that's my sweet. Is this, does El Jarreau, does he still get up on stage somewhere? Because a voice like that doesn't leave you. Can I go see him at the Greek? I believe I believe Al Jarreau is no longer part of this earth. Oh, okay. That's going to that's gonna make well, seeing him at the Greek uh, challenging. <laughs> but, but do me a favor and double check that because I don't want to start yeah, he, he, like that, which is. You know, you're right. He passed away in, in 2017. Yeah. And I remember being bummed about that because, you know, when some people, some people's presence on this earth, even if you don't have a direct connection to them, make the world better. Yeah. And the legacy of the music Al Jarreau left, that song puts a smile on my face. I don't, I could be going to prison and yeah. that song could be on the prison bus. With yeah. The biggest gangsters <laughs> in the world about to, you know, really handle me once I get to the prison. Yeah, 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 and I'd yeah. still have a smile on my face. You know, a song always gives me an emotional connection. And Al Jarreau's body of work does that to me as well. Yep, yep. I, I'm sure many people listening to this might know him only from the, uh, well, I'm assuming everybody listening to this, of course, remembers the theme song to Moonlighting. That's right. Yep. And if you don't, it's the end was sha-la-la-la. Because we so, met you know, on the way. Yep. You go nice. You got that. Yeah. So you. you know it's crazy. He probably made more money off singing that song than yeah. any other entity in his career. That's always crazy. That's I that know. good stuff. I know. I one of these days I want to get like a maybe you can recommend somebody like a really really connected like accountant in the business that I can have on the show. I don't want them to name names. I just want to use hypotheticals. Like for example, how much money has Les Claypool made? Because Primus did the theme song to South Park. 
Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I just want to know. Give me, re- give, just give me, give me, I'm not, I don't care. I'm, I'm, it's so good. I don't want to know how much money Les Claypool has in his bank account. It has nothing to right. do with that. I just want to know, generally speaking, I suspect he's made more money off of that than he's made out of all the frog brigades he's ever been in put together. Is that crazy? I want to know. I would absolutely uh, uh, agree with you on that. And in much the same way, I bet you the bare naked ladies made more money on the Big Bang Theory than yeah. anything they've ever done in their life. I mean, just how long they've been running. I'm sure the South Park guys were extra cool to Les Claypool when they made a deal. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Because that was a good get at the time. And no one knew how long South Park was going to be around. I yeah. mean, I, Les Claypool might have a piece of South Park for all we know. For all you know? we know. Right, exactly. Yeah, there, there is, there's a lot of complexities in a deal that can be made of that of that stature. Yep. But uh, yeah, so uh, yeah, no, I, I, I do have an accountant that would probably know that. So, uh, you know. Uh, off, off the uh, off record, we'll uh, I'll, I'll, I'll put you in contact. Yeah, if anybody, if, let me know, people. If anybody else finds that as interesting as I do, I, I don't know, but to me, it's to me, it's uh, fascinating. So, but it's like the Rembrandt too. Sorry, the Rembrandts yeah. with friends, of course, too. You know, I, right. I I've done, I've done a few shows with them. And they told me, I mean, it's just why we, we don't ever have to work again. Though their case is interesting. The producers threw their names in on the songwriting. You know, uh, even though if you listen to Rembrandt, that's a that's a, couldn't be more of a Rembrandt song if you know their catalog at all, which have, they're really, really, they're kind of jingle jangly replacements esque post punk type band. But you know, obviously, they made their mark with the Friends thing, but uh, the producers are smart enough to go. Uh, I think Johnny Carson took a little credit too for the Tonight Show thing that. He didn't write. So that they people know there's money in them there, theme song hills. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's how the rich get richer. So the that's so right. Al Jarreau's doing the jazz thing, which is still a viable commercial thing in 1981, but under the radar. Because you're also going you're also going into the George Benson. Yeah. You know, there was a real lane for that jazzy R and B thing. Yeah. It was a real big lane there. And it was not only commercial successful, it was also um uh, as a concert, successful too, you know, because mm-hmm. Earth, Wind, and Fire was kind of dancing. There was a real jazzy R and B lane there that, that doesn't really exist anymore. But I find that uh, what's Bruno Mars's new band like, Slick Toxic or Silk Toxic or something? His band is doing a lot of that stuff that uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire and Al Jarreau were doing. It's it, it's fantastic to hear today. Slick Toxic, Sorry to if I'm not mistaken, was a Canadian it's a metal, hair band. metal band. Yeah, it's, for sure. It's a metal band. I always go back to that. I, <laughs> I think know. it's Silk Sonic or Sonic Silk. Or it's not Slick Toxic is Swedish metal band. I know. Yeah. But, uh, you know I me. Mean? I always go back to the hair genre. Shout out to Slick Toxic, wherever they are right <laughs> now. Um, so, so hip hop is a thing that I'm trying to think of where it would be in the culture at this point obviously blondies had rapture but that doesn't really I, I can tell happen. you okay. i can tell you because mm-hmm. 79 sh- uh, rappers like you know, yeah 79 sure. Sure. How, okay. now, how, how successful was that as a as a radio number one it was okay. the number one song it okay. was the number one song but it was considered like a novelty yeah. remember that song like bit bop bam alakazam you know Double Dutch. You remember that song? Oh, sure. Double, oh, Dutch, sure. Yeah, yeah, Double yeah, yeah. Dutch bus. So like you're talking about hip hop was in that lane. Novelty, one-offs, mm-hmm. will never be a genre, will never be a, a, a commercially viable genre of music. So in 80, 81, it was still stuck in that really novelty space. Um, I, 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 Rapture, Blondie had had, she had it out then? Or was that a little earlier? 
Was that uh, late? No, yeah, no, I think we already did that on one of these episodes. I think that-, that I think you're yeah. right. I think yeah. you're right. Because right. we're still a few ways. That we're, I, I think uh, Curtis, Curtis Blow had the breaks out already, yes. I believe. We're still away from Run DMC a year oh, or yeah. two. So it is still, it hasn't become a viable commercial uh, entity at this point. I don't think anybody knew what to do with hip hop or rap right. at this point. So you mentioned Curtis Blow. And at this point, he is on his second album which sounds quite a bit like his first album, but <laughs> this is, and you know what? Somebody, I, I didn't know this and I haven't been able to even verify this fact, but somebody told us on our social medias it, reacting to us, skipping over the rest of these new releases and threatening us bodily harm that, <laughs> that I believe Curtis blow, at least according to, I think it was her uh, first major label signee for hip hop. I think he was on like well, like Polygram or something. Well, that's gonna be a little difficult to like to 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 confirm because you know, are we calling Sugar Hill Gang a, a rap group because they were on Sugar Hill Records? Yeah, you know, in seventy eight seventy nine. I think Curtis Blow was like a year later. If but I, I may be wrong. I, I may be wrong. But we you know we'd already seen Sugar Hill Gang in seventy nine have a number one song with what we're going to call a rap song yeah, and what yeah. we're going to call a rap label. Now, maybe he might be the first guy who signed to a major label that wasn't rap oriented. No, that's what that, it is. He, th that's what yeah. I think. So he's on Mercury Records. Gotcha. That, now that I will, I will concede to you for sure. Right. So assuming that um, whoever, sorry, lady, I didn't write down your name. Uh, this might be the, like the second ever major label release of hip hop. And um, it's, it's more of a, a curiosity in that regard, but as long as we're talking about it, here is the title track from Curtis Blow's The Deuce. So, so the deuce, I, I think he's riding the brakes thing as far yeah. as he can because yes. this is the deuce, the deuce. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so I think, but you know, like any songwriter artist, once you find a lane, you're going to stay in that lane and write it. I mean, it is fun to have a hit song. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Curtis, well said. Yeah. Right. You know, it's fun. as an artist, yeah, it's a lot of fun. And Curtis Blow is kind of Lewis and Clarking. Uh, where rap was going to go. And he found a place where people liked it. It was definitely different than um, Rapper's Delight because he wasn't relying on the, you know, the chic track of good times to, you know, hide behind. He was literally, I, this is probably a pure hip hop straight up song uh, produced from the ground up. So uh, it's very Curtis Blowy. He's got a style. And, um, you know, if I was a Curtis Blow fan and I heard that as a second record called The Deuce, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm satisfied with it. Right. And then the, the third lane that's still going on for a commercially viable music, um, you know, out of what will become known as, you know, the hip hop R&B world is is funk, which I guess is what that's what we consider the Commodores. Yes, absolutely. So this I mean, R &B, is R&B, R&B, are you separating R&B and funk? 
I don't know. I don't know. I'm just trying to figure out what to call what to call the Commodores. It's all this stuff that this urban music that's not going to be commercially viable within six years, basically. Right, 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 right. Good point. Good, good point. I I just I I would look at uh, the Commodores as like early Commodores was funk. And then they got into like easy. You know, I mean, it's why I'm easy. Yes. That's more just R&B to me. So I think I think they dance the line, the precipice between uh, funk and R&B. Well, so what happens with them, right? I, I I have heard is that I think I saw this on a behind the music or whatever is they have so much success with the Lionel Richie ballads, which don't sound like brick house. That right. at a certain point, they everybody share they write some songs while they're partying and touring the last record. But when it comes time to make the next one, they go, Lionel, you got another one of those piano songs, right? right? <laughs> And all of a sudden he realizes that maybe the Commodores need him more than he needs the Commodores. Exactly. But, or but, he saw where it was going, you know, like, yeah. you know, Brick House might be the funkiest song in my life, you know, but I think that kind of funk, you know, Rick James kind of gave it its last gas, was kind of leaving. And this, this kind of like big ballad pop R&B thing was kind of coming our way. Uh, being spearheaded by Quincy Jones, Michael Jackson. Prince was way more funkier, but I think I think uh, 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 our Lionel Richie really saw a lane he could fit into mm-hmm. without without splitting his songwriting and live shows with 12 other guys. Well, you know well he, he saw it with the help of somebody else who I, I would have never seen coming. Um, we'll get to that in a second, because it's two artists who who are more linked than I think most people realize. But first, this is, I think, the last Commodores album with Lionel Richie, and here is the song off of that that everyone will know. Nothing wrong with that. Such a great song. You know, it's, 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 and we've talked about it a million times. I think something that's very telling about songs coming out of that era of 81, when it still sounds fresh and timeless today, you really hit the bullseye in 81. That song, you put that song on a dance floor today. I don't care any club anywhere. People are up and grooving, whether they're 12 or they're 85. It's a great, great song. So around this time, for reasons that I knew two weeks ago or three weeks ago when we did the first half of this that now elude me, around this time, Lionel Richie makes the acquaintance of Kenny Rogers. Mm. And this is, they have this incredibly unlikely friendship. They don't have much in common on the surface. And apparently they don't have all that much in common under the surface, but they're kindred spirits. And as obviously, since they came out in the same month, as Lionel Richie is working on that last Commodores album that he was on. He's producing stuff for Kenny Rogers. And wow. And so you think about Kenny Rogers as well. First, he's like psychedelic guy, right? Just found out what condition my condition's in. And then he's the prototypical um, Nashville to the core, but still um, popular, uh, poppy enough that his stuff can cross over, but still firmly country stuff. And then he becomes more of a mainstream schmaltzy balladeer through the 80s. And so does Lionel Richie. And apparently it's because these two are sort of walk, working in lockstep with one another. If you think about the stuff that, line, you know, the ballads that Lionel Richie um, made famous with the Commodores and then the stuff that you would continue doing as a solo artist, 
I don't think it's all that shocking that he is the producer of this Kenny Rogers hit right here. You've never let me down. You've turned my life around. The sweetest days I've found, I've found with you. I've loved the life we've made And I'm so glad I stayed Right here with you Through the years Isn't it That song... Like, you can picture Lionel Richie singing that song. Absolutely. And that song moves me to tears every time. If you listen to the words... And at the end, Kenny Rogers has a beautiful little turn when they change keys. Through the years, and ever let me down. It's such a beautiful piece of music. I know that you said Lionel produced it, but did he write it? No, I don't believe he did, because I would have made a note of that. Hold on. Let's see who wrote this song. It's a very fair question. It's such a beautiful, beautiful piece of music and so well sung. You know, when you told me about that Dionne Warwick song that does it to you when she does that second verse, why do you have to be a heartbreaker? You know, that 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 song does that to me too right here. Man. 81 had some real heartstrings, man. Real heartstring pullers. Lionel Richie wrote about half the songs on this album, but Through the Years was written by one <clears throat> Steve Dorff, obviously not that Stephen Dorff. Yes, it is. No, it's not. It's Stephen Dorff's dad. No way. I, I promise you, Stephen Dorff's dad is yep. a national songwriter. Yep, you are absolutely right. I see that. I, I see that now in the bottom of his Wikipedia. Okay, so that is insane. Yep. That, uh, I I love those little tidbits. I knew his dad was a songwriter, but I didn't know it was this kind of quality of the song. That is crazy. It was written, Crazy. By, written by him and one Marty Panzer, who was the first songwriting partner of Barry Manilow. That's a good group right there, man. They can craft, craft a pop hit. Then you got Lionel Richie producing it. Yeah. I mean, that, that's just got can't miss all over it. Marty know? Panzer wrote over 30 songs recorded by Barry Manilow and over 100 songs recorded for Disney Pictures. Which is crazy because Marty Panzer is the most heavy metal name I've ever. I know, heard I know, no, 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 Marty no. <laughs> no, I heard that too, and I'm like, wait, where do I know that? Was he in Quiet Riot? Like, <laughs> yeah. Was he in Hurricane? I mean, who is Marty Panzer? Yep, exactly. So, and then the the collaboration will continue between those two. What's the one? Um, what's the big Kenny Rogers song? Like both he and oh, is it Lady that both him and Lionel Richie recorded? One of those. Yes. Lady. Yep. Lady. They both did it. And um, boy, you know, it's really strange because, you know, I guess Lionel would take them real hard card in the pop world, do his thing. Kenny would go dip them in the country charts, get them up there and then come back with the same song and then chart his own song again. I mean, I think Lady charted twice uh, for um, not for Lionel Richie and Kenny Rogers, you know, uh, which is which is crazy. Yeah, no, those guys were were apparently bosom buddies and the best of friends. And, and, and it all actually makes sense if you go back. And, and that's one of the great things about doing this is 
you strip away the trappings of what was in the music video and what shirt were they wearing on the album cover and who were they dating at the time, yada, yada, yada. And you just listen to the music and you go, yeah, Kenny Rogers ballads were essentially Lionel Richie ballads and vice versa. Absolutely. Because you get caught up in genres and, you know, you never know there's such as some pots go between the two. Yep. And it just goes to show you a good song is a good song and will always be a good song. So you've been wondering all of this time, what did Johnny Cash sound like in June of 1981? Yes. Well, well, wait. And give no me a little, more. give me a little background. Uh, give me a little background. On sure. the record. Who's producing it? Okay. Uh, is it? Is he still on Columbia? Has he left them yet? Have they given up on him? You know what I mean? He, he is. Uh, he releases this album in 1981 on Columbia Records. It okay, says, so they're still they're still like riding his, uh, you know, his "I Walk the Line." So. It says the title track of the Baron was a top 10 hit. Now, are they talking about, we're talking about the pop charts here? No, 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 no. country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was a number, a number 10 country hit and none of the other singles would get into the top 40 for country. And let's qualify that. Any new single by Johnny Cash was going to hit the top 10 just based on, curiosity and airplay you know okay. so the, the i've got the feeling this might not be uh one of his stronger efforts did he a, did he write it no Tully? this is written by one paul ritchie billy Sherrill, and jerry lee taylor only one of whom warrants a wikipedia entry of their own gotcha and yeah. it was produced by this album was produced by the aforementioned billy Cheryl, who, needless to say, uh, you know, has a lot of country credits. It's okay. His most noteworthy thing that I see off the top of his top paragraph on Wikipedia is he co-wrote Stand By Your Man with Tammy Wynette. I mean, you know, one of the all-time country classic. So definitely, uh, you know, not someone that Johnny Cash not someone that the label was making Johnny Cash work with. You know what yeah. I mean? Johnny Cash was still controlling his own destiny at this point. Yeah, exactly. You he know, was... the success of the success of the gambler or any Willie, Willie Nelson, uh, you know, sidebar success on his movies was not any honeysuckle rose was not affecting Mr. Johnny Cash and what he was going to do at this time. It's funny that you mentioned, I don't want to, you know, grasp at straws here, but you mentioned the success of The Gambler. The album is called The Baron, and the, co the cover shows Johnny Cash at a billiard table holding the, <laughs> holding the, pool, holding the pool cue like it's a rifle. So there is... I strike, I strike that. <laughs> yeah. I strike that. There might have been a little bit of a, uh, you know, an aesthetic warranted back then by these artists. Yeah, so let's see. Let's see. Here's the title track, The Baron off The Baron. If I had known you longer you might be a little stronger Maybe you'd shoot straighter than you do Maybe you'd shoot straighter than you do As he walked into the pool room You could tell he didn't fit In his handmade boots, custom suit Pearl-handled shooting stick Tonight there'd be a showdown Yeah, we got, we got The devil went down to the pool hall yeah. <laughs> and who says rap wasn't alive and well? By <laughs> you, know you know what's scary? Started off pretty solid. It's got the uh, it's like a Jordan Air singing backup, and yeah. you know I'm buying it. You got a gospel, yeah. and then it just took a giant, giant dump in the verses. Johnny Cash is like, 
guys, I'm hungry. You guys write me, come, you know, write me some lines about, you know, Marty, Marty Stewart's El Paso or Marty Robbins El Paso. I'll meet you back here in an hour. You know, they kind of gave up in the verses. It sounds like, you know? Yeah. Yeah. He's not that far away at this point from when he did that album about the crazy mad scientist who uh, switched his brain with a chicken. Right. Yeah. That's, right. that's, we're getting, yeah. It's, yeah. A little bit of pill psychosis, I think, is kicking in a little bit. Uh, Johnny's been on the road too long or yeah. not long enough, e either one. And I, I think it's interesting for a guy like that. Star, and that's why I wanted to hear this record. How was he going to find himself in 81? You know, because Johnny Cash can only be himself, mm -hmm. you know, and seeing guys can't who can't reinvent himself. I mean, I think Rick Rubin did a wonderful job on her and, and all that when he when he brought him over to his label. And I believe it was 94 when that record came out uh, doing all the covers. I think that was a good move and a great way to button up his career. But Johnny Cash can only be Johnny Cash, you know. Yeah, yeah, he was in the wilderness for a while, and 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 we yes. find him. We find him in the thick of it right there in June of nineteen eighty one. A final country release from that same month: John Denver and an album and a song called "Some Days Are Diamonds." Does that mean anything to you? It means absolutely nothing. Should it? What chart positioning? Are they? I don't. I don't know. Let's find out together. The only thing I knew, my, my parents are not huge music people. My mom enjoyed rock and roll and her, you know, Bobby Soxer teen days, the Frankie Valleys and the Beatles and stuff like that. It's, John Denver's the only artist that I know my parents to have gone to see in person down at wow. down at Giant Stadium. I think my mom got like a nosebleed up in the nosebleeds and had to leave a little bit early because she was uncomfortable being that that far off the ground watching John Denver. And when you hear... <laughs> That's probably a, about the point in time that they went to go see him. And that was um, uh, a very vanilla effort that was suitable for a wide range of people who wanted a pleasant night of music. Yeah, I, I, two things. Did you say your mom and dad saw him at Giant Stadium? No, 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 no. I'm sorry. I probably did say that. Um, I think they saw him at the arena there, the Brendan Arena. It got you. Which I'm still, I'm still surprised he's playing arenas. Giant Stadium was going to blow my mind. No, 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 no. He was, uh, it was, it was definitely an arena because she was, she, they were up in the cheap yeah, seats. Yeah. yeah, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Uh, here, here's the '81 filter in full effect. Yeah, John Denver was never going to be back on the charts again because John Denver could only be John Denver. Yeah, and this release in '81 is showing that. You know, you still singing out, you feel of my sense. He can't get away from. You know, Rocky Mountain, ah, it's just always going to be that guy. You could have give you could have given this man beat it to sing. <laughs> and he would have gone, you don't even beat it. He just would have been John Denver. So yeah. 81 said, John Denver, we're not letting you win anymore. 
you can always play the fairs. You can you know you can send Tully's parents home at the Brandenburg mm -hmm. Arena or wherever they're going to see the show. But we're not letting you on the charts anymore. You had a hell of a run. And uh, you know, if you, you can make albums because that's what you do, and the label's gonna let you do it because you're a legend, legendary act, and your catalog's always gonna make money for the label. But you being a uh, a viable artist who's gonna be in the top 40, top 20. Those days are, are going to be over for you now, Mr. John Denver, with all yeah. due respect. Still has that Hollywood acting career to fall back on as somebody who watched, um, oh, God. Oh. oh, 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 I don't know, five weeks ago. Terrific. I saw it recently. I, saw, I, I think it, I saw it. It totally holds up. Was on. It was on. I think it was on the uh, the, the Turner Music or uh, Turner Movie Network, right? Did you watch yeah. on that? Yeah. And it was a. Uh, I forgot all about that movie. It's yeah. all about L.A. It's weird to see the L.A. as the background of that yeah. whole thing. And George Burns is fantastic, and he's amazing in it. I love that movie. It's a forgotten classic. You and I were watching it at the same time. Wasn't it like a Sunday, like at three o'clock in the afternoon or something? Something. Oh, crazy. No, 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 no. I, I, I DVR'd it. Actually, we literally went through the things that were available on demand from TMC and picked that out. Which is, I don't know what's more pathetic, getting stuck in it because it's not. No, mine is more pathetic. I didn't. Just no, no, mine, mine it. is. I, I caught it. I caught it when it was being broadcast. Mine's way more. And I go, I'll watch this for two seconds. And I got stuck in an old God, uh, you know, uh, rabbit hole for the next two hours. They made an old God too, which I never saw. Oh God, did you, you ever devil. See that? Oh God, you devil. Did you, uh, did you see it? Problem. We saw Oh God a lot on TV when I was a kid. Cause you know, what's crazy about it is pop, pop culture obviously always has struggled with tangling with with faith and how can you make it faithful to the faithful while also making palatable to a mainstream audience. That movie is a beautiful expression of what God and religion are actually supposed to be about while also being very entertaining and fun and funny at the same time. It's actually a very remarkable little movie. And I think that may have been Terry Gar's first major role in anything. And you forget what a, what a, uh, I mean, Terry Gar was was uh, I, I hate to use such um, gutter language to talk about the distinguished Terry Gar, but she was kind of the leading milf of late seventies, early eighties oh. cinema because that that was her that was her role to be the sneaky the sneaky hot mom, without a doubt. And she uh, really shines a lot of charisma, a lot of charm to that movie. And then yep. Terry Gar would go on to Tootsie a yep. couple of years later, which That's she was right. amazing in. She does that milk mom thing so amazingly. And like, yep. I say that with all due respect, yep. a beautiful woman and a great actress. So I, there was just, it, that song, that, that movie is a perfect storm of charm between a religion, jokes, yep. and it, it just makes you root for everybody in it. So go watch Oh God if you haven't seen it, folks. Yep. We're seeing it. Uh, okay, let's see. Oh, wait, John Denver. Yeah, go John go Denver. Have at it. No, no, no. No, we just we buttoned up John Denver. Yeah, yeah I don't know that there's anything more. We probably said more than really even perhaps needed to be said about <laughs> about John Denver. So I don't know if you ever got all the way to to Peter Tosh. Peter Tosh was always the we all had Bob Marley's legend, and some people actually got the box sets and stuff like that. But you always knew you were dealing with a guy who got some really seriously great weed when the guy had had <laughs> the Peter Tosh poster in his, in his dorm room or in his apartment, Peter Tosh, the guitar player of the whalers who went on and, and did, and did his own thing. I've literally never listened. I know exactly who he is and I've never, ever listened to him ever. I don't know if you have. Yeah. I mean, many times he, he, you certainly heard the song legalize it. You've heard that song, right? I mean, that's, that's his like anthem. 
Uh, he was the like the punk rock guy in the Whalers. He was the edgy yes. dude. He was right. the guy with a little bit of attitude. He was the guy that was really in the trenches in Kingstown. You know what I mean? Bob was all about love and all that. And so was Peter. Uh, uh, but Peter hung around the guys that were, you know, traveling around with guns in their back pocket on Vespas. You know, he was a different kind of dude. But incredibly talented and has an, an incredible career in his own right. Tragic story. The whole story is tragic. Uh, like like a lot of the whole Bob Marley legacy is, you know. What's the tragedy of Peter Tosh? I don't even know. Uh, Peter Tosh was uh, murdered. Oh. Yeah, he was executed in his own home. I see. Well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for this song, at least, Mark, it was nothing but love. <laughs> this is. Uh, I, I'm going to bring in shows to a screeching halt, as you can see. <laughs> there's really no way to sugarcoat a man being sugarcoat a man being executed in his own home. This is. Uh, I'm. I'm. I'm led to believe by Wikipedia was in the prominently featured in the movie Pineapple Express. I hope I have the right version of Peter Tosh's "Nothing But Love" off of the album "Wanted Dread." and alive. Okay, that wasn't what I was expecting at all. That, that is not the Peter Tosh I know. That's Peter Tosh swinging for the pop chart fences. You know, that, that I, I, I feel, I hear more Teddy Pendergrass in that. Uh, I feel like a Temptations vibe in that. That's not the legalize it, you no. know, uh, you know, a, a catchy, catchy, subi Peter Tosh I know, you know? I mean, that's the right version, right? Are you I, sure that was the right song? <laughs> I mean, let's, I'll go right to the album and then find it in there. Um, yeah. Please, somebody let me know if I'm, if I'm, uh, I'm, I'm in the album, Wanted, Dread, or Dread and Alive. And I'm, what I'm was the name of that song again? Nothing But Love with an artist named Gwen Guthrie, clearly the uh, co-lead vocalist on that. You know, it's so interesting because reggae is one of those things that you you kind of paint yourself into a reggae corner and it's just of its nature always been a very limiting, limited genre. Once you're doing reggae, you're kind of just doing reggae. It's like blues. It's hard to do stuff that's really bluesy. You can meld the blues with rock and roll because the rock and roll is half the blues. But that was a legitimate swing at 80s, early 80s R&B while also being identifiably reggae. I've never heard anybody successfully blend the two. No, and it's an incredible job of doing that. I know the Whalers, before they got really into their soul roots, and they were sort of a uh, Motown-ish type band. Yeah. They wore the suits and all that. So this was definitely within them. I'm just surprised to see him. Well, you know, this is 81. He's going to take another shot at something else. He's been doing reggae for a while. There's obviously a whole other side of Peter Tosh. He wanted to get out. Yeah. Um, I believe. I believe they were on, I believe he was kind of like the Keith Richards of the way. I believe he was on Rolling Stones records at the time. I'm not sure. That but I think is... Rolling Stones had a label mm -hmm. and, and I, and I think Keith Richards might've had something to do with this record. I'm not sure, but um, uh, let the man fly, man. I look at, here's the thing. 
a lot of times people try to get out of the lane and it's just awful. And yeah, you know, please go back to your lane and drive 55 and stay there. I want to hear more of that from Peter Tosh. Cause that sounds like, it sounds like an expression of who he is, not something who he isn't. So you're exactly right. It was released. There are two versions of it. One released um, on EMI America. The other, uh, no, I'm sorry, one, one version was released for Jamaica. And then, wow. and then the other version was released in the U.S. by EMI and in Europe by Rolling Stones Records, which was, of course, the Rolling Stones record label. And yeah, the lead single was a duet with an American singer named Gwen Guthrie. Nothing but love. It peaked at ninety number ninety one on the Billboard two hundred. Huh? You think you know a guy? Wow! So it got in the top one hundred, which yeah. is you know, which means stations were playing it. I've never heard of the gal before. She sounds really great too, as well. So, what well, what a surprise! This is what's so great about this show, Tully. You know, yeah. we don't claim to know everything. We know, you know, we know like stuff like other people do, but. To truly be someone knowledgeable about music, you need to discover new stuff every day. And I had no idea about this. And now I'm going to go a deep dive into Peter Tosh's, like, you know, into this particular record. Because I know this record has straight up roots reggae on it. Like, yeah. I, I know Reggae Melitis is on Wanted, Dread, or Alive. And that, that's a, that's, that sounds like the most dubbed out song of all time. So this yeah. is almost like, Having hearing fly on the record floor, it's like what the hell is this? Well, yeah, nothing but love is track is track two, the one that we just listened to, and the one that you just mentioned, reggae melitis, is track three. Well, I, I mean, and it couldn't be two different. Uh, they're on they're on two two different planets, if you will. Crazy, good for him. Also out this month in 1981, the second album by the Beat, aka the English Beat. The album was called Wappin, as in what happened. And um, uh, I, I think a commercial success, but I think to hardcore fans just considered um, regurgitated more of the same from the, the, the signature songs of the debut album. I don't know if the song Drowning by the Beat means anything to you or, or warrants, any, uh, warrants a re-listen right now. No, you know, Wappen was such a disappointment for yeah. us English Beat fans. Because after right. I just can't stop it, it was such a, it was such a, it was such a mood. It would just it, it 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 was just nonstop. Everything was a hit, and this was kind of like I don't know what they were trying to do here. It, it was I don't think there's a hit song off Wapping. No, right? there isn't. My my question to them is what happened? <laughs> Literally, you know. Yeah, you got balls when you when you when you know that you when you strongly suspect you might be dropping a stink bomb to call the album Wapping. You don't you don't you don't write the headlines for the Robert. Christ Gauss yeah. of, of the world. That's right. Yeah. For the Robert Hilburns, the Chris Gauss and all. Yeah, those yeah, yeah, guys. yeah. You, you don't call right, you, you, don't. You, you don't call your album the awful truth when somebody's gonna say it's awful and that's the truth. <laughs> that's, right. <laughs> that's right. You don't set them up. And then they were coming back with special beat service a year or two later, which had uh, you know, save it for later, and I confess. So they quickly returned. They just lost their songwriting mojo. It's such an interesting record. I mean, I'm sure there's beat fans go, it's my favorite. Of course. You, know, you know, there's always that guy that loves uh, you know, loves that Lou Reed record that's unlistenable because they're that guy. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. I and I I think this is uh something happened, but what happened is very, very true. And then they become I I I forced my my family to listen to the whole 
first general public album the other night while we were playing uh, Trouble here at the house while we were playing a board game. Because if I'm going to play a board game with three-year-olds, I'm going to at least listen to music that I like. <laughs> and, and general public is is the the synth pop band that comes out of um, of the beat eventually, right? Yeah, yeah, that's Rankin Roger and um, and, and Dave Wakeling. Yep. Who made uh, up General Public? And see on the writing on the wall, the two tone era was, you know, it it had had made its play. They saw Madness kind of get into the top forty with Our House, yep. and said, "All right, let's try something different." And um, General Public's got some of my favorite songs of all time. You yeah. know, yep, this never is. you never you done that. Yeah. Uh, you know, Tenderness with a beautiful song. I mean, really, yep. really great songs. Really, I, I enjoyed anyway, the album. I enjoyed the album top to bottom. I, it was even even the album tracks had some fun stuff going on. Yeah, super listenable and super groovy, fun yep. stuff. So, uh, Black Flag are cranking out EPs at this <laughs> point. They had one every month with they did. SST. They did. Yeah. I don't. Know. You tell me if you need to listen to anything off of Six Pack by Black Flag. I think we we we've been over this before, and you and I we know where we stand on the Black Flags of the world. With all due respect to the movement, it's never been my bag. Um, let me know if you want to hear it. Also, out this month, pretty remarkable. These two both came out the same month. The um, the EP Minor Threat from Minor Threat, which has the song Straight Edge, which literally, if you've ever heard someone described or describe themselves as straight edge, it, it, it comes from that song, which is, boy, what an accomplishment if that's the only thing Minor Threat ever. Uh, how many bands ever leave that kind of mark on a culture? No, you're entirely correct. And really going against the grain what punk rock and the ethos was then, because it was like booze, drink, F you, this, you know, where, where Ian McKay and Discord and all those guys were saying, look, let's build our own scene. Let's build, let's do it ourselves. We're strong. Let's keep our bodies clean. You know, I think Bad Brains taught them a lot of how to eat and, the, and like, let's be healthy. Let's not eat processed foods. And it's just a beautiful way to live. And if you, they found like-minded individuals and had a really amazing punk rock record to uh, deliver the medium to. And I think what's interesting is, you know, I mean, how close Henry Rollins and Ian McKay have been best friends for like 45 years. Yeah. So for both of them to have a record out that were very iconic and six pack, I don't want to hear it, but it was yeah. kind of my last, my last black flag record. I really liked to tell you the truth and to have that come out and the minor threat record come out in the same month is uh, really incredible to look back in history. And it's also really incredible to know that from where punk rock was announcing its arrival to the world in, in 77, we're only, it's only four years later. Well, what an exciting world. And I, I, I don't want to sound curmudgeonly when I say this. It's just a simple fact that you can still come out with an album that sounds like an album that could have come out 20 years ago that sounded that also could have. And then, then it could have sounded like something that came out 20 years before that. I, I expected that we were going to live in a world where music was going to keep on evolving as quickly as it did when we were little. And can you imagine, can you even begin to fathom where we would be musically if music had continued to change at the rate that it was changing at, at this point. I fully expected that by now my kid would be listening to stuff that I could not follow that I would say, now what are we like, are you playing that backwards? Is there something wrong right. with that recording? What's going on here? He's like, what are you talking about, dad? These guys kick ass. Like, and we're just, we're, and instead he's responding to, you know, Bonnie Tyler's I Need a Hero because it's on the soundtrack to a Despicable Me movie. It's just it, a lot, a lot to get from the Ramones to Minor Threat in four years is crazy. It, it is, it is insane. And the only thing I can sort of maybe attribute it to is that 
Rock and roll was still young back yeah. then. Oh, yeah. you know, rock and roll started in the 50s, and we're talking about the early 80s now. So rock and roll has been around for about 25 years now. Yes. So I, I think it's been recycled and done. There's only so much you can do with 12 yeah. notes, three chords, and the truth that it's all been done. You know, we're, we're on computers now, and, and, here, and it's all been done so much that anybody can do it now. And that's yeah. the good news. And that's also the bad news simultaneously. So I almost think like jazz, like, uh, like, you know, like uh, the old singers that used to sing long glass, you know, like it just, it just go, it goes away and it becomes a specialized thing. Rock and roll, whether you like it or not, is becoming a specialized genre now, a la jazz, you know? Yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah. I think we've wrung every bit of creativity out of it. And now you got to go to like, you know, I, I guess the computers to find something new, but like you said, what is that new thing? You know, yeah, it's, not, it's not for want of trying. Right. So now we just have, we just have the 32 flavors of rock and roll and we're just about done with the new releases from this one month, 40 years ago. And the one flavor of, of popular um, mainstream accessible music that we have not yet touched on is the hard rock, heavy metal genre Blue Oyster Cult, I feel like, are kind of thought of by most as sort of a, a one-hit wonder, but don't never forget that they actually did manage to kind of successfully rewrite Don't Fear the Reaper and have another hit. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And they're a band that has people that they're a religion to a lot of people. Their yeah. longevity, it's, it's, I've never been a huge fan, full disclosure, but They've been able to like build a fan base and continually tour and it's off two songs, you know, yeah. and, and it's, it's, it's amazing to me because, you know, there's plenty of bands that have five or six songs that haven't had the uh, touring success that BOC has been able to maintain for all these years and are still doing it. I just looked at my poll star that's coming back now. Now that people are touring, yeah. which is the, uh, for those that are, care is the, uh, the, the Bible of uh, of the concert industry and BLC just played a gig and they grossed $65,000 the other day for one night. Blue Oyster Cult. I've never heard anybody call them BOC before. And, 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 and if any, if I ever have another conversation with another human being for the rest of my life about them, I, I vow to you, I will call them BOC from when that <laughs> opportunity presents itself for now. Here's the in case, in case people don't remember there was don't fear the Reaper. And then there was, song man you know and he's got a great voice. what's his name like buck Darmer or something uh he, he's yeah. got a great voice do, do i hear a cowbell on that song too no 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 i don't i don't think so arguably arguably uh burden for you needs more cowbell um, yeah you know i mean see. i think it's the one thing missing and i i got a prescription and that's small cowbell <laughs> but but anyway you know it, it's it's uh they're 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 a band that speak to a lot of people and a lot of people like cite them as influences they've never really spoken a lot to me i like the two hits yeah i've never been on a deep i've never been on, on a deep boys to cult dive never happened no, no I'm, tempt I'm, I'm tempted to on the basis of of that i like i might i'm more tempt, uh, tempted to listen to that than maybe to revisit say like 
Boston was basically yeah. who they sound like at that point. Yeah, you're right. Buck Dharma, the lead singer of BOC. And boy, they're growing on me. They're growing on me. Now that I know that they're an acronym and their singer is Buck Dharma. Yeah. And so you just used BOC, man. So we're, yeah. you know, it's just somebody else's here. We're giving each other challenge here. Let me see. So this is when um, the brief period of time where Aerosmith finally inevitably imploded and Joe Perry soldiers on with the Joe Perry project, which enjoys um, a pretty solid reputation. You know, I thought at the time this was, I'll show them, I can still be on heroin every waking moment and continue making, <laughs> but I can continue making records. And, and, and a lot of people really like the Joe Perry records, particularly the second one. I think that because he got some deal contingent on being able to deliver an album in like two months or something crazy. So the first one was, was kind of shuffled off, but I forget if that's, if we're talking about the first or the second one here, the album is called um, I got the rock and rolls again. I don't know if the Joe Perry project means anything to you. Uh, they, they, they don't really. I, I'm curious if you could tell me who was the singer for this. Yeah, I, totally, sure, if you I know. sure can. Yep. Um, the singer. I'm surprised that this guy didn't just go off and start a hair metal band and get a deal because that would have been plenty. Sure. Um, no the lead. Joe Perry sings lead vocals on two of them. Oh, so he's got a bass player singing vocals on two tracks by the name of David Hull. It looks like the majority, the slim majority, six songs of uh, lead vocals. Charlie Farron. Charlie Farron, huh? Yep. And doesn't 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 ring a bell. I just know that Joe, but Joe Joe singing lead on two. You say? Yeah, not the one that we're gonna that we're going to listen to. This song is called East Coast, West Coast. It was written by Charlie Farron and had been a local hit for his previous band, an act by the name of Balloon. And so he brought this to the table and it becomes track one, first single fronted by him on the, this is the second. So I think generally considered this the, the superior of the two. I thought it was going to be to tell I you know, the truth. right? Yeah, I mean, it's not not bad at all. I would listen again. In fact, I want to hear more. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's a solid Aerosmith song at the very at the very least. And um, something that I've read about the Joe Perry project was that I guess Joe was a little bit more ear to the ground, receptive to the punk thing than maybe the rest of Aerosmith was. And that there was a little bit more of um, of, a, of a loose energy to his guitar playing that was perhaps inspired by the punk stuff that he'd been hearing from the Sex Pistols and all of that. And yeah, I can see why that stuff has a following. And I know I've heard Joe Perry drop that as as just sort of like one of his many accolades, Joe Perry Project. And you always kind of have to humor him and go, oh, yeah, of course, everybody knows the legendary Joe Perry Project. But he might not be wrong. It might have actually been pretty cool. Funny uh, to show you the depth of my uh, you know, my uh, loneliness. I read a book by Mock Bell, who was the 
third singer for the Joe Perry Project. <laughs> and he was on the third record and f- final one where he said, let's get back to the, uh, let's get back to Steven. And all he said was in the van, Joe Perry would listen to Nevermind the Bullocks over and over again by the Sex Pistols, over and over. It's so funny you bring that up because that yeah. uh, that struck me about that whole thing that I read that that he, over and over he would not he wouldn't that tape would not leave the cassette. Well, there you go. Uh, there you go. Yeah, yeah, not too bad. And that is, I didn't even know there was a third. Nobody listening to this knew there was a Joe Perry project. Very little of them care. None of us knew that there were that there were three albums. I thought it was three. two, and you read the book, ladies and gentlemen. They don't just hand out three-time rock and roll <laughs> Jeopardy champion. You got to put your ten thousand hours in, people. <laughs> sure you do. You got to read the book by the guy who sang the third record by the Joe Perry Project. Not even the first, Mister Mock Bell, and he spelled his name Mark Bell, but everybody called him Mock because he's from New England. So he spelled his name M-A-C-H Bell. Lots well, sure. of lots of layers to what's happening here. Lots of layers. It's a lot faster that way. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> and uh and finally, if you want to pull this one up on on your end, I, I don't know that this band made any imprint on the culture, but we're getting into the tipper gores and the won't somebody think of the children and you know, um, America knows only two enemies, the those evil communist Russians, and of course, um, the dark prince Satan, who is coming for our children through heavy metal music. And this band called Demon um, embraced that. And I think we're one of these bands that like, in lieu of real world-class talent, just decided that they could uh, make a name for themselves by um, you know telegraphing their Satanist leanings, so Demon released an album called Night of the Demon, featuring the single Night of the Demon. Oh my God, it sounds exactly like Priest. There's a guy named Dave Hill in the band. It's the singer. Yeah. And there's a Hill in Judas Priest. And now I'm wondering if they're brothers. And that's where my mind goes immediately. My mind went. Yeah, my mind just went to this sound. This makes me want to um, rewatch straight to VHS horror movies that came out in 81. I mean, it's serving up a lot of, uh, it's it's just too on the nose. Hi, yeah. we're Demon, we're the unexpected guest. The, the artwork is, you know, you know, it's got the cross with the guts coming out of it. It just, everything is just so on the nose. It takes away from the music, which I can barely listen to because I'm so caught up in the demon of it all. And they had that weird, creepy ending and like, basically it's just Judas Priest without Rob Halford singing, you know? I'm trying to see if this guy is um, related to the guy from. Um, yeah, I don't know. Priest. I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know. That'd be a deep, deep dive. But I'm sure we're pissing off some demon fans right now. Um, yeah, listen, you, you and I love the genre of metal. 
love it from, uh, you know, from the late seventies to the, the early nineties. Demon didn't do much for a lot of people, especially over here, but it looks like they made it made a little bit of uh, waves in the UK. Cause I see on YouTube, they've got a, p- a bunch of live festivals, like yeah. Sweden, like, you know, market Hala festival they played. So yep, they yep, made a yep. little noise over there. I'm looking at them playing the rock hard festival in Germany in 2017. So laugh all you want at, at, at demon. <laughs> Satan, the jokes on you yeah, as they say satan works in mysterious ways <laughs> all right well that that finally is 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 june of 1981 what wonders await us in july of that same year we will find out when next you and i speak in the meantime you are back on the road markmcgrath.com for all of your mark mcgrath needs yes indeed hit me up uh at Mark underscore McGrath on Twitter. Tully and I love hearing from you guys. We'll respond. It's fun to talk music. As much fun we have on this show, we have on social media. And I'm glad we got to the second half, Tully, because I wouldn't have felt complete. I don't think we would have done our job if we didn't. And we got a whole show on it. It was great. Yep. Terrific. All right, uh, buddy. I will speak to you again soon. Have a good night, Michael Tully.